This is Jennifer Gonzalez welcoming you to episode 87 of the Cult of Pedagogy podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk about how shifting from feedback to feed forward can make a huge difference in helping the students and other people in our lives grow. teachers, we pretty much give feedback all day long. We tell students how they can improve on assignments. We praise them for things they're doing well. We correct their incorrect responses, and we redirect them when they behave in ways that aren't helpful to learning. And that's just the students. We also give feedback to our colleagues, although in most cases, these exchanges don't happen as often or as freely as they probably should. We receive plenty of feedback as well from our students, their parents, our administrators, and our peers. And we encourage our students to give feedback to each other with pretty uneven results. Really, the experience of school could be described as one long feedback session where every day people show up with the goal of improving while other people tell them how to do it. And it doesn't always go well As we give and receive feedback, people get defensive. Feelings get hurt. Too often, the improvements we're going for don't happen because the feedback isn't given in a way that the receiver can embrace. It turns out there is a different way to give feedback that works a lot better, a way of flipping its focus from the past to the future. It's a concept called feed forward, which was originally developed by a management expert named Marshall Goldsmith. As far as I know, not a lot of educators are familiar with the practice of feed forward. And I really think if we learned how to do it and started using it more consistently, it could make a huge difference in how our students grow and how we grow as professionals. My guest today, Joe Hirsch, is going to help us do just that. In his book, The Feedback Fix, Joe digs deep into the practice of feed forward and shows us how and why it works. After listening to our conversation, you should have some new ideas for how to communicate with people in ways that will have a much bigger impact on their growth. To check out Joe's book and read notes on our conversation, go to cultofpedagogy.com, click podcast, and choose episode 87. Before we get started, I want to thank this episode's sponsor, Kidum. Kidum is a free platform that allows teachers to plan, assess, and analyze student work. And now more teachers are using Kidum to collaborate with each other. Using Kidum's free curriculum planning tools, teachers can plan in the cloud so you can put your heads together no matter where you are. And when we work together, our students reap the rewards. Visit cultofpedagogy.com slash to learn more about co-planning and sharing your best work with each other. I would also like to thank you for the reviews you've left for this podcast on iTunes. The more reviews a podcast has, the more likely other people are to check it out. So if you like the podcast and you think other teachers should listen, take a few minutes, head over to iTunes and leave me a review. Thank you so much. Now here's my conversation about Feed Forward with Joe Hirsch. All right. So just tell, tell us a little bit about, about who you are, what got you interested in studying feedback, and, and what your educational background is, too, in terms of teaching. Uh, so, Jen, thank you for having me on. So excited that we're doing this. Thank uh, you so, so much for coming on, too. It's awesome. 
Uh, so for the past 12 years, I've taught fourth graders at a private faith-based school in Dallas, where I've also held various leadership positions. And I'm also finishing up a doctorate in instructional leadership and innovation. And Jen, I am happy to say there is light at the end of that tunnel. <laughs> so it is, it's been a grind, but it's coming to an end. Um, but I've always loved to write and uh, for a while was contributing pretty frequently to Edutopia. And one of my blogs was about this alternative to traditional feedback called Feed Forward, which really seemed to resonate with a lot of people and eventually got picked up by an acquisitions editor at Roman and Littlefield, um, who somehow convinced me that there should become a book about helping mm. teachers give better feedback. But pretty early on, it became clear to me that traditional feedback, um, you know, which is about a past that people can't change, not a future that they can, wasn't just a problem in the classroom. It's a problem in the boardroom. It's a problem in the dining room. It's a problem everywhere. So yeah. my publisher and I agreed to reframe the whole concept and to look at how FeedForward unleashes the performance and potential of people all around us, at work, in school, at home. And while there's a lot of content in the feedback fix that appeals to a broader audience, for example, like how some of the most successful organizations from Fortune 500s to world-class hospitals to championship-winning football teams are applying the concept, the teacher in me wanted to show how FeedForward can dramatically improve the way teachers are communicating and collaborating with their students, with their supervisors, most importantly, with each other. Okay, and what, what grade do you teach or what you, okay, fourth graders, fourth graders. I, I teach fourth graders. Let's let's talk for a second about feedback in in schools in particular, and that's that's who's going to be listening to this. Our teachers and administrators, um, it's pretty much nonstop feedback all day long. That's that's we give it to each other as teachers. We give it to our students. Students give it to each other, or at least we try to teach them to do that. So um, let's talk for a little bit about what the problem is. What's wrong with the way most people give feedback currently? So people can't control what they can't change. And we can't change the past, right? And that happens to be the focus of most of the feedback that we give or receive. We can't change the past, we can only fix the future. And when you look at the research, there are three really big reasons uh, for why the traditional model fails. Uh, first, okay. it, it shuts down our mental dashboards. When we get negative feedback about something that we can't change or control, our brains flood with stress-inducing hormones, cortisol, uh, that trigger our threat awareness and put us on the defensive. You remember those, um, the anti-drug campaigns, I think it was from like the late 80s, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs, and it showed the, the fried egg yep. in the pan. Yeah, so it was a, yes, hor it was a yes. horrifying moment for me as a kid. And I remember thinking <laughs> as like an eight-year-old, you know, I am never, ever going to try drugs or have fried eggs ever again. You know? <laughs> and, and if neuroscientists you know, created a similar campaign for this, you know, this is your brain on feedback, you would literally see vast swaths of our frontal lobe go dark. I mean, literally dark. Huh. The parts that are responsible for executive function, for creativity, uh, the parts that allow us to sort of set our agendas and make rational decisions, essentially we are in a state of mental paralysis. And it's not to say that all negative feedback is bad or that it's bad all the time. Uh, there is surprising research that shows it can actually be a good thing. It can lead to greater activity. It can create more resilience. But on the whole of it, 
traditional feedback, it makes us brain dead. <laughs> uh, so that's one. Yeah. That's one. Um, okay. So it shuts down the mental dashboards. The second reason traditional feedback uh, fails is because it really tends to focus primarily on ratings and not on development. And this is a huge problem in the corporate world and, and a major reason why 60% of Fortune 500s have pledged or have already begun to revolutionize their performance management practice. It's why huge companies like Microsoft, Gap, Adobe, Medtronic, Cargill, Juniper Systems, I mean, the list goes on and on. They've gone ratings lists in their appraisal process. But it's also a really big problem for teachers because when feedback consists of an impersonal set of performance standards that's you know based on classroom observations that happen at best twice a year and last about as long as an episode of the Big Bang Theory, <laughs> we're, we're overlooking the essential goal of feedback. And that's to create positive and lasting improvement. You don't get that with most teacher appraisal systems. They're highly standardized, they focus exclusively on ratings, not on coaching and development, and they tend to be dominated by the person giving the feedback, that would be the supervisor, and not on the person receiving it, who would be the teacher, the person ultimately responsible who, you know, for owning that change. Right. Okay. And so in this case, you're talking about feedback that is given to teachers about their own teaching. And I think most people would agree with you. I, I know that in my experience, my the people observing me would come in maybe once every other year in some cases. <laughs> it was really very, very spaced out. And um, yeah, and, and I think people who've gotten the negative ratings, they don't necessarily know what they can do about it. And it's just a snapshot. And and that really, you know, is the third big problem that emerges when you look at traditional feedback. It, it's that it really just reinforces those negative behaviors yeah. and beliefs that we we're trying to shed, but but just struggle to get rid of. Because when we hear about flaws that we can't fix anymore, because they're in the past that we can't change, it creates it creates a feeling of learned helplessness. You know, the feeling that we are unable literally unable to do anything about our future. And so we just quit. Right. Uh, and that leads us to adopt a fixed mindset about our shortcomings and our pitfalls. Right. And it's really ironic in a, in a sad way because the very process that's supposed to, to energize us to become a better version of ourselves, mm -hmm. it ends up making us think that no better version is out there. So instead of committing ourselves to improvement, which is what we would hope would happen, we hold on to this debilitating view of who we are instead of focusing on who we are becoming. Mm. Do you find that the, the feedback that teachers give to students has the same impact? It, it really does. And it, 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 it really <clears throat> focuses much more on ratings and grades. And you know, we can get into that a little bit more. But uh, because it's, mm -hmm. it's lacking a developmental focus, and it's focused on things that students can no longer change or control, right? The grade is done, mm -hmm. um, the number is set, it's very final. Students can't really actionalize or operationalize any of that information. And because it happens well after the event, they're powerless to do anything about it. So feedback in schools, in the form of grades, in the form of numbers that are delivered well after the incident has occurred, that very much triggers the same feelings of defensiveness and helplessness in students as it does among employees in a business setting. Mm, got it. Got it. So you've, you've pretty clearly identified why traditional feedback doesn't 
really work. So what you have done is you are flipping that now into a concept called feed forward. So explain just sort of briefly what feed forward is and why it's better. Yeah. So uh, as a concept, feed forward has, has been around in the research literature for about two decades. Um, I, I discovered it through Marshall Goldsmith, um, who's popularized the concept. Uh, Marshall is one of the world's most admired executive coaches uh, who I've gotten to know recently and was kind enough to write the forward to the book. And Marshall really introduced Feed Forward as a way for people to very quickly share an issue they want to solve or, or get better at and to get advice from as many people as possible in a very short amount of time. Uh, no judgment, just okay. present a problem, ask for suggestions and listen to what people say and then say thank you and move on. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, it's like speed dating for self-help. Okay. <laughs> um, Karen May, um, who's currently... Uh, vice president of people at Google has a funny name for it. Um, she she applied the concept and called it speed back okay. <laughs> because it happens so quickly. What I've tried to do here uh, with Marshall's blessing is is to put this concept under a microscope and to really look at the research supported attributes and features that make it so successful. I guess when you when you look at it, the difference between feedback and feed forward seems very subtle. Uh, Feedback focuses on the past. Feed forward focuses on the future. Feedback is all about judgment and ratings, and feed forward is about people and development. But as I, you know, started to really dig into the research and began my reporting for the feedback fix, I came to realize that there's really a lot more going on here. And when we make the shift from feedback to feed forward, we're not just engaging in a subtle art. Uh, it's really a hard science. And it's a hard science that's shaped by very specific dimensions, which is good because that means that it's something that can be learned and ultimately something that can be applied. Okay. So what we're gonna what we're gonna do is we're gonna get into some of the the characteristics or the qualities of feed forward. But before we do, um, if you could just give like a really simple example of a of a situation where, somebody would get a certain type of feedback and how you might flip that and turn it into feed forward just so that we all have, we're all sort of on the same page when we're thinking about what the difference is. I'm gonna give you an example of, of some feedback that I got as a teacher. And I wanna see if you can sort of tell me how, how my administrator could have sort of flipped this around or something or, or done it in a more feed forward way. Okay. So, um, so she observed me one time and, you know, sort of ticked a lot of the boxes. A lot of things were fine. And, and one of the pieces of feedback she gave me was that um, it's actually it was actually about feedback. Interestingly enough, she said that I wasn't giving my students enough positive um, praise. Like I was pointing out, I was correcting misconceptions and that kind of thing. But when students were doing things right that I needed to add in more sort of pointing out what they were doing right during my lesson, which at the time I thought, okay, I, you know, I can do more of that. And, and so it was, you know, something that I tried to remember to do more of. So how could that same flaw or need for improvement in my teaching, how could that have been communicated or dealt with in a feed forward way? Well, let's assume for a minute you only got that feedback about your feedback um, weeks or maybe months after you had already settled into a habit with that pattern of behavior. Yeah, well, yeah. So already, already, 
already there's a, a time lapse, right, between okay. between the action and the response. But okay, that let's say right after the you know your supervisor came into the room, she she told you about it. So there's no time lapse, and and now we're talking in in present tense. I I suggest that um, when administrators are are doing their classroom observations, because by the way, with feed forward, you don't you don't dump everything. I mean that that wouldn't make sense. Classroom observations serve a very good purpose. Even having a, a form uh, like a Danielson form or a Marzano form or a Marshall form, you know, looking, you know, that that is really sort of the standards in teacher evaluation um, and observation. Those are those are useful guys. Those those are not bad. They're not inherently wrong. It's more about the way we're using them. And what I would suggest is that the the supervisor in this case sit down and use what I call the four leads instead of telling you what he or she saw. Sit you down and say, Jen. I noticed that during the observ- during the lesson, and then dot, dot, dot. So that's one lead. Mm. Or Jen, I, I wonder why you decided to talk to Johnny this way, but when you spoke to Jimmy, you spoke that way. It seemed like Johnny got a lot of like harsh feedback from you and Jimmy was getting a lot more positive praise. So wh- why was that? So I noticed and I wonder, yeah. those are more of your, um, your, your ponder questions. And then you have sort of probing lead questions, which are your what ifs and your how mights. Jen, what if you decided to really try to give three pieces of positive praise um, that was focused on process, not product, right? Because we don't want to upset Carol Dweck fans out there. Uh, but you know, <laughs> yeah. um, so what, what if you focus on on process praise? You know, what what do you think would happen? What if, or Jen, how might your lesson? Go differently if you used a three to one ratio, positive to negative feedback. So now I, the supervisor, have not told you what to do. I haven't described a problem. I have opened you up to thinking about your practice. And that is really the essential goal of, of Feed Forward is to move from what I call being a, a, a window gazer someone who stares through a window and tells you what he or she sees, to becoming a mirror holder, someone who holds the mirror up to the other person, can't see anything, right? All, all that person sees is the backside of the mirror and lets the other person, the receiver, describe what he or she is seeing for themselves. It's a much more powerful coach approach to giving feedback. Got it, got it. Okay, and yeah, that, that really, it involves me in the process more. Um, and also, I mean, just listening to you say it as as my principal, um, you sound more interested, and I'm taking this language now right out of your book, but you sound more interested in my development as a teacher as opposed to just rating what I've already done. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we have to view people as as incomplete people. We have to see ourselves as incomplete people who, who need our support. Uh, to become the best versions of themselves, but often they hold the answers. They just need someone to help them uncover those answers, to find that path, right. to find that right. that that internal locus of control, that sense of I can do this, and and a willingness and a desire to want to do it. But it only happens if we guide them uh, to finding that solution, not actually telling them what that solution should be. Because then people become defensive. That goes back to your brain on feedback and all the defensiveness and helplessness and argumentativeness that emerges from traditional models. Okay. So now that we've looked at this 
just one simple example. Um, one of the big things that you do in the book is that you break down this whole concept of feed forward and you look at six sort of essential components of it. And you call this um, by the ac acronym repair. Mm -hmm. So if people really want to give effective feed forward, that that I wanted to just say feedback, but that response should have these qualities that all they start with the letters that build the word repair. So if we could now spend some time digging into this repair process um, and and what, you know, if somebody's really wanting to embrace this feed forward concept, what what will how will they use these components as as ways to make it really effective? Yeah. Um, well, if something's broke, you fix it, right? <laughs> so so yeah. we have to repair we have to repair traditional feedback. And um, drum roll, please. <laughs> um, repair stands for uh, regenerates talent. That's R. Expands possibilities. That's E. It's particular. It's authentic. It makes an impact. That's I. And it refines team dynamics. So regenerates talent expands possibilities, particular, authentic, impactful, and refines team dynamics. So want to break this down? Let's, yes. you know, one by yep. one. Sound yes. good? Okay. Let's do it. Okay. So R is for regenerates. I feel like I'm on Sesame Street. Um, okay. So <laughs> um, the, the talent landscape today is really very different, right? Uh, we have more and more millennials taking over the workplace which is both good and a challenge. And as someone who is himself a millennial, though often tries to deny it, um, <laughs> I, I really, I think that we, we have to be very sensitive to the different needs of today's learners uh, who are frankly much more interested in lattice and not ladders, right? Yeah. So it's the, old, the, old, the old way would be like, Climb the corporate ladder, climb the classroom ladder, like become a principal, become a superintendent, become a district person, or become senior vice president in your organization, become CEO. Today's generation is much more focused on employability, uh, key factors that drive personal development than they are about where they work, uh, about employment per se they're more interested in moving sideways than they are in moving up. And they're looking very carefully and consciously for people and places that are going to give them those opportunities, not just to get ahead, but to become better. And actually there's research that confirms a lot of this, you know, it, this sense that we have of people's desire to grow as individuals. Um, and one study I saw recently um, surveyed almost a thousand um, new uh, entry-level employees, um, so millennials, and they rate professional development as the number one driver of their engagement at work. This wasn't just in a, in a school setting, this was across the board, but it wasn't money, Jen, it wasn't perks, it wasn't free lunch, it wasn't foosball tables, which is you know sort of what we tend to think about millennials, it, it was about skills. It was about development. It was about helping them become the best versions of themselves. So Feed Forward has to drive this focus on development by bringing coaching into performance conversations. So like, give you another example with, with a teacher, right? So let's say um, 
let's say you're I'm the I'm the supervisor and you just started using these pineapple charts, right? Which I know is kind of a hot topic on cult of pedagogy right now, right? So yeah. um, and I say, Jen, pineapple charts, so amazing. Love it. Love what you're doing. Have you ever thought about leading a staff development on that for our team? How about uh, running the next in-service in the spring? And you're thinking to yourself, uh, that's not me. I don't do staff development. I, I go to staff development. I don't yeah. actually lead it, right? That's not who I am. Right. But instead of me just telling you, Jen, great job, love the love the pineapple charts, right? Which really just affirms what you already know, because yeah. feedback isn't always bad, right? Feedback is also good. Um, if that doesn't push you to become a better person mm. or mm -hmm. challenge yourself or stretch, but by telling you, Jen, great job on the pineapple charts, did you ever think about leading a staff development on that? Well, now I've just given you a different message, right? That's a different conversation. Yeah. Uh, you are now thinking about how you can stretch that talent, which you already knew about, into an area which is still kind of unknown to you. And that's where the growth occurs. Mm -hmm. These unknown, unformed areas of personal development and potential. So that's for yeah, I can see this working with the, the feedback we give to students all the time, too, that, you know, if you see a student that has a particular talent in something, you know, asking them if they can just give a quick presentation to the class or if they can show this to a smaller group of students who's really struggling with it in that area, that that does that puts them into more of a of a leadership role with that mm -hmm. that skill. It really does take it to another level. Absolutely. Right. Which is kind of what leads us to the second attribute, the E, which is expands possibilities. And the, the company that I saw really do this so, so well is Pixar. And we love their movies, right? They're very successful and like mm -hmm. the, most, the most imaginative, creative, and like really just industry breaking kind of stuff. But behind that magic on the screen is a very fundamental feedback technique uh, that they call plussing, uh, which is all about driving the idea count up and not down. I love so this it's really awesome. Yeah. So I actually had the chance to speak to Ed Catmull, who's so the creative director at, at Pixar, and, and he said, "Here's how it works." Okay, uh, the animation team uh, gets together every week for something called a crit session, like critique or critical. I don't remember what that was exactly, but yeah. they're basically there to tear each other apart, yeah. uh, to break down the storyboard, to break down the storyboards, and to make it something useful right. and something people want to watch. And so when you're at these crit sessions, um, there's a very simple rule among the animators. You are not allowed to critique another person's idea unless you can figure out a way to keep it floating. So rather than dismiss the idea completely, these animators have to accept the premise and then add on their own suggestions for improvement. And if it sounds a lot like improv, that's because that's where it comes from. Um, Ed told me that Pixar unabashedly <laughs> stole uh, the plussing idea from the improv world, where mm. where comedians are are trained literally to accept all offers, yes and right, make your partner look good, yeah. yes and yeah. Yeah. yes yeah. yes, the power of a, the power of a yes and over a no, right. So one example um, that he told me that um, they're actually they're working on now for Toy Story Four, which I'm so excited that they're doing right. There should be Toy Story Fifteen <laughs> or Fifteen Hundred as far as I'm concerned. Um, so let's say, you know, an animator presents um, a storyboard and Woody's there and Woody, Woody's eyes are, are looking straight ahead. 
So the, the director of animation might say, love that, love how you had his eyes. So that's your yes, mm -hmm. that's accepting the premise. Um, great, what if they rolled left? Right, so that goes back to that, the four leads that I was talking about before, like those what if questions. Mm -hmm. So what if they rolled left, hmm, right? <laughs> so all of a sudden now the animator's thinking, yeah, I never, I was so preoccupied on the painstaking process of getting Woody's eyes to look forward, I didn't even entertain the possibility of his eyes rolling left. Let me, let me think about that. Um, so if you think about it in our classrooms today where there's such a drive towards project-based learning, which is a good thing, but really does have to be managed carefully in order to be mm -hmm. effective, um, instead of shooting down a student's design idea, you say to them, yeah, Johnny, I see where you're going with that. And what do you think would happen if you tried it that way? Right? Instead of using kerosene, what if you, which we probably can't bring, we can't really bring that into the school building. Uh, what if you used olive oil? Would that work? You know, what do you think? And John is like, oh yeah, olive oil could probably work. It'll combust, it'll light. Yeah. It just won't blow up the school, right? <laughs> so you're challenging them directly. You're prompting them to reconsider an assumption and you're helping them create a different and maybe better version of what they thought. Because this is focused on the receiver, not on the giver. Mm. It's not my idea. It's your idea. Mm -hmm. And that goes back to what I was saying before about being a window gazer versus being a mirror holder. Right. Window gazers, they're talking about their ideas. Mirror holders are talking about the other person's ideas. Mm. More specifically, mm -hmm. they're letting other people talk about their ideas. Right. And it's not right. just telling you what I see. I'm challenging you to see it for yourself. I'm going to take a moment to thank our other sponsor, Pear Deck. Every day, teachers present material through PowerPoint or Google Slides presentations while students watch from their seats. The problem with that model is that it doesn't really engage students. Some will tune you out, others might be lost, and not every student wants to speak in front of the class. With Pear Deck, you can take that same presentation, add interactive questions, and send it straight to student devices so they can participate in real time. As students engage with your Pear Deck, you see their responses on your device, so you can tell right away who's getting it and who needs help. Built by experienced educators and tested in the real world, Pear Deck is integrated with G Suite for Education and is a fun way to get every learner participating. Pear Deck is offering my listeners a free 30-day premium access trial. Just go to PearDeck.com, that's P-E-A-R-D-E-C-K.com slash Cult of Pedagogy to redeem. Now let's get back to my conversation with Joe Hirsch. Okay, so the first, we've got the first two. Yes, we've got Regenerates. Yeah, so Regenerates and Expand. So then feedback has to be particular. Because let's face it, there's a limit to how much we can absorb and, and operationalize in any given time. Yeah. Um, feed forward is really about picking your battlegrounds strategically and selectively. Uh, the idea here is, is really to trim, <laughs> not shave everything at once, uh, which is what usually happens when we get this information dump in uh, traditional models like our performance review, which is basically a punch list of 15, 16, I don't know, 20 items, I think was something on my last performance review. And, and it's all happening at once and you're like trying to process each one individually, but it's like a fire hydrant. It's like, it's like a geyser that's just coming at you and you can't process that. And it turns out there's a very strong basis for really being more selective, being more particular 
about our feedback. Mm. Social psychologists have, have um, named it as decision fatigue. It's basically that our brains can only process so much and we get too much information. The brain essentially short circuits and we then choose the path of least resistance, right? We do the easy, obvious, intuitive action, which is not the change or the improvement that we want, but the behavior or the pattern that we have adopted up until this point. And there's some really cool um, like research stories that I that I share in the feedback fix. One is about these parole judges uh, who were more likely to grant parole for cases they heard in the morning and not later in the afternoon. And it was like a really yeah. big range. It was a really big differential. Mm-hmm. And when researchers were going through it, they were like, "What is going on here? Like, is it is it bias? Is it is it just like they couldn't figure it out?" And then they started to look at the timing of when these decisions are being made. And at, at the time that these judges were making late afternoon decisions, they had heard 15, 20, 30 cases. Their brains were shot. Yeah. <laughs> and so they went into decision fatigue. And when you're in decision fatigue, if you're a parole judge, you're gonna opt for the default choice, which is to deny parole. Right. So unfortunately for these people um, who had their cases heard in the late afternoon, timing was really everything. Yeah. It also explains a lot of um, voter behavior at the polls. Um, the reason why people tend to vote down ballot, it's a really interesting study, is not out of ideological purity or, or allegiance to a party. It, it really just comes down to exhaustion. <laughs> right? yeah. So like, yeah. let's say, you're at, let's say you're, at the, you're at the polls and we, let's face it, I mean, unless you're really into this stuff, you don't know the names of your local candidates. You don't yeah. know their issues. You don't have any idea what they stand for. You probably don't even recognize their names. And so by the time you're down to like issue 15 or, or, or um, candidate 15, you're just gonna tick a box that you know, is the easiest and right. least right. resistant path, which is, you know, oh, there's an option to check all? Okay, that sounds yeah. good, I'll do that. Yep. Right, so, so the lesson here is to be selective and strategic. Um, don't treat appraisal as a one-time event. It has to be an ongoing, continuous and job embedded conversation that happens every day. It can't be seasonal sport. And that, and that allows you to really focus in on specific things mm-hmm. um, Absolutely. instead of dumping everything. This, we use this uh, concept a lot in writing instruction. Um, and I've, I've told this to a lot of my student teachers who are teaching uh, English. If a student submits an essay, you're not going to mark it up for organization and, and the tone and fix every single grammar error you see. Like it's just, it's too much information for So you really do need to focus on one or two key things that the person can fix that would make the biggest difference and maybe do another round later where you're fixing some of the more minor things. Absolutely. Yeah, well, people need to see themselves as unfinished products. Uh, and the more we view ourselves as works in progress and look to others to help us become the best versions of ourselves will be the best people we can be. Uh, which is part of why this next step, authentic, is hard for a lot of people who give feedback. Because we see problems, we see pitfalls in other people and we know it's a problem and they may even know it's a problem, but we don't wanna be mean, right? We don't wanna crush them. We don't wanna say the wrong thing or rock the boat. and so. The tendency among supervisors, whether that's principals at school or your boss at work, um, is to either avoid giving feedback altogether 
or to disguise it as a praise sandwich. Uh, these, these really, in my mind, useless conventions where we basically slip one piece of criticism in between two very, very surface level gauzy praises. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, you're at, you're at parent-teacher conference and, and you're sitting across from Mr. Jones and Mrs. Jones and you say to them, Mr. and Mrs. Jones, Johnny is so excited in class. There's the praise. And now here's the meat, right? You know, his excitement tends to get the better of him. And he's actually become quite disruptive in class lately. Then the praise. Oh, but Johnny, he's such an asset to our classroom environment. I love having him here. (laughs) So you think you've done a good job. You've done good by the parents. You know what the parents heard? Johnny is so excited. He's an asset in class. They totally missed the the critical piece because of what researchers label the recency effect. We, We tend to only remember the most recent thing we hear. And so if the last thing they hear is praise, that's what they're going to remember, not the critical piece in the middle. And so a much more effective way to go about being authentic and yet not being soul crushing uh, is to to use um, an approach I call PREP, uh, which stands for point, reason, explain, and prompt. And it kind of brings together all of the, the elements that we've talked about so far um, mm-hmm. and a couple more that we'll talk about at the end. And basically you just, you say it like this, right? You're with Mr. and Mrs. Jones and the key is to be authentic and real and yet afford the receiver, in this case, the parents with voice and choice to give them some measure of control and say in the process. So if Johnny's really causing a disturbance in class at parent-teacher conference, you don't give a praise sandwich. You tell them this, hey, Mr. and Mrs. Jones, um, is it okay with you if I give you some honest feedback? Because asking permission, even though it's it's really just a formality, right? Of, of course you can give permission. You're yeah. the teacher. But but it actually puts people at ease. Like that's actually just, it's not even feed forward. It's just, it's good practice in general when you give feedback. But yeah. Mr. and Mrs. Jones, can I give you some feedback? And they're like, okay. They're getting nervous now though, right? Because yeah. like that yeah. happens, you start to go on the alert. And so you immediately, you have to locate this feedback very specifically and very authentically quickly. And so you say, point, Mr. Mrs. Jones, um, lately Johnny has been um, interrupting class. And then you give the reason, right? You wanna kind of give the, uh, the reason for why you think this, right? Don't make it abstract. Actually, I've been seeing this in the last two weeks almost on a daily basis. And I've been recording, you know, kind of informally times when I've seen Johnny really disrupt the class. And to me, it really does seem now like a, a, a pattern of behavior. It's not just a fluke. So you've, you've, you've given it an, uh, an address and you've given it a name. Okay, so now they know where it's happening and what's happening. And that's your P and your R. Now you have to explain why it's a problem. Now this may seem very obvious, right? But we have to make our feedback as clear as possible to other people, because most of the time, the reason why people reject feedback as often as 70% of the time, according to one estimate, is because they don't understand what you're saying to them. It's either too vague or it's too much at once. It's that geyser effect. And so you have to really be specific about where it's happening and explain why it's a problem that needs to be solved. So you'd say, as you can understand, when Johnny's interrupting like this, it's disturbing to the others in class, and more importantly, it's really interfering with his ability to become the best learner he can be. And now the critical piece, the prompt at the end. So Mr. and Mrs. Jones, what do you think about that? 
I mean, do you see this happening yourself? What do you think we could do together to figure out a way forward? Now, I've tried this. This isn't just like an abstract. I've used this. And I remember talking to a, a colleague of mine once, and she said, Joe, if you tell that to a parent, they're going to be like, why are you asking me to solve your problem? <laughs> you know, this is your problem. You're the, we're paying you to solve our problem for us. Tell us what it is. So you tell us what the, what the yeah. answer is. But that's not what happens. It's not what happens, Jen. When you ask people for their opinion, they feel validated. They feel heard. And they, they feel like your partner. And, and prompting them for their ideas for solutions doesn't mean you make them own it exclusively. right? You still, as a teacher, are going to guide that conversation. You're the pro and they're looking to you for that help. However, the simple act of prompting your partner for a more collaborative solution makes such a difference. And even bad news, when delivered this way, point, reason, explain, prompt, mm -hmm. it puts people at ease, it takes them off the defensive, it is clear, it is concise, it's locating the problem, it's looking for solutions together. It makes such a difference in how we are authentic with people. And ultimately, people want us to be authentic with them. People don't want a praise sandwich. Mm. People, want, people want the truth. Because honestly, it's not that we fear change. We fear being changed. Mm. And, mm. and that essential truth to me is really why negative feedback is it's kind of this big taboo this big no for a lot of people because they're worried about changing the other person they don't want to change people they don't want to control them they want they want people to be themselves they just and and people want to be themselves too so receivers also don't like it when they feel like it's a command and control approach but when you do it this way you're bringing people into that conversation that's why that that first example i gave to you um but what this looks like it's really about giving voice and choice. And as educators today, and really beyond education in, in business settings as well, it's much more about personalization and choice and voice. And if we're doing that in the way that people are learning today, sort of this personalized on-demand self-directed path, then we should be doing that in how we help provide people with opportunities to learn. Hmm. which is the feedback, right? So what, what if though, what if you do want to change the person? <laughs> if you, if you're yeah. dealing with, because I think in these scenarios, I'm sort of imagining these mostly high performing people who can just get a little bit better. But if, what if you're dealing with, I, I taught with some people who had gotten pretty negative throughout their years of teaching. I'm guessing that this approach would work much better for them, but it might might be kind of hard for them to see how they are, you know? So, I mean, is that, I'm guessing maybe that's part of the point, reason, and explain. You're just sort of describing what you're observing. You know, you're making, you're making such a good point. And I actually, I asked Marshall Goldsmith this question. Yeah. I was like, Mar Marshall, what if the person doesn't want to change? What do you do? Yeah. And he's like, easy. You do nothing. Yeah. I was like, what? No, 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 no. You have to do something. And he said, no, you actually, you do nothing. You can't force someone to change. You can't. I mean, you can threaten them. You can lock them up. 
but you generally cannot force a person on their own volition to change. We can't do that. They have to own the change. This is why traditional feedback is so flawed because it's command and control. It's not collaborative. And in a way, I think this gets to the next part of repair, which is the I impact. Mm -hmm. If you want feedback to make an impact, you have to really put it in terms that people can understand and that people can operationalize. So maybe when you're giving this prep approach, you're, you're giving your points, your reasons, and your explanations, there are some things you can do to, to make it a little more successful. Like instead of just telling them, you could show them video samples of what they're doing. I mean, that's Jim Knight's really progressive way of doing mm. um, I trained with Jim mm -hmm. and, and he's unbelievable. At, at really pioneering this idea of uh, video-based instructional coaching. Uh, and Jim helped me see the, the benefit of doing that. And, and that could be something, it's, it's tough. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's easy. And there's a lot of barriers, a lot of hurdles. You gotta be really familiar with what you're doing. Right. But if you do it well, that's the best way to open someone up to, to who they are and more importantly, who they can become. But, but the thing to me that really is, is like the guide when we talk about how you get people to make an impact it's the research on transfer. Um, Beverly, um, Beverly Showers and Bruce Joyce, who, who really did pioneering work in this area, showing that simply telling someone what to change, or even just doing a simple demonstration of what that change looks like, produces a transfer anywhere from zero <laughs> to 5% adoption. Mm. Wow. Zero to five percent. That's terrible. <laughs> so yeah. That is yep. that is basically striking out every time. Yeah. So when that process is joined by active coaching, a much more collaborative collaborative approach it involves reflection and, and guided support. Joyce and Showers found that the transfer rate skyrockets to ninety five percent. Wow. And it seems so simple, right? It seems so simple. Just just guide them, support them, give them time for reflection, for frozen thought. Provide that that just-in-time support, but we don't do this nearly enough. You know, we tend to treat feedback like a cleaver, right? We are chopping off big pieces of, of, of performance at once. We need to think of it as a toothpick. Small, precise mm. spot treatments, right? Guided by incremental support. Don't try to do it all at once, right? Use a toothpick, not a cleaver. And, and I know I've said this already a couple of times in our conversation, but I really do believe it. People don't fear change. They fear being changed. And the reason why they don't put things into practice is because changing your practice, that feels like you're being asked to change a part of yourself. Nobody wants to do that, right? But guiding people towards that change and helping them uncover those improvements through self-discovery and coaching, that sticks. That makes an impact. You know, I'm remembering in the, in the book, too, that you described um, how in order to really make sure that the feedback you give makes an impact, you sort of need to guide the person to make a specific plan for how they are going to implement and transfer that, that new learning or that new habit. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think um, turning ideas into commitments and resolutions into results is, is, a very, is a more simple process than we give ourselves credit for, for do, being able to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I really love Atul Gawande's approach to checklists. Um, mm -hmm. he's, he actually helped doctors save more lives using simple checklist procedures in surgical rooms. Uh, pilots go through checklists before they take off. 
Um, so what if teachers were just using checklists in their performance and craft? Uh, we would eliminate a lot of the errors in style and substance that we tend to make just because we're in constant motion without a lot of time to reflect on what we're doing. Right. Right. And this would be a skill that we could easily teach students to do. Any student that's trying to just reshape their habits or start, you know, new ones, teaching them how to do something like create a checklist that they refer to on mm -hmm. a regular basis is another way to build that habit. Um, yeah. And that actually reminds me of, of a lot of meetings that I've been in. And this is just in and outside of school. There's a lot of times where we'll, we'll introduce a problem. We'll all sort of talk about it. Everybody will give their input. And then we just sort of trail off and there's never a plan actually made. To, everybody <laughs> yep. sort of says, yeah, we need to do something about yep. that. And then we move on. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's just as true for, you know, personal development, personal behavior as it is for staff-wide development, staff-wide behavior. And there have to be small incremental yeah. uh, changes. Dan and Chip Heath when, uh, in their book, um, in their book, Stick, um, mm -hmm. they, uh, they, they, they say not, not like mile markers, but like pebbles, right? Instead of these like right. gigantic processes and, and, and concepts, shrink the change. Um, you know, it yeah. really just, it makes things much more, much more manageable, much more doable. That's the impact, which I guess, uh, there's one left, right? R at the yes. end of repair. So we had regenerates, we had expands possibilities. We had particular, we had authentic impact. And now for the last one, uh, refines team dynamics because gen feedback is a, is a team sport. It is not just something that happens one-to-one. -one, it happens in groups and across and within organizations. And when we dump that command and control nature of traditional feedback, we make room for something much more collaborative and shared. Uh, the story I tell in the book is about Nest Technologies that introduced the world's first smart thermostat. Mm -hmm. Thermostats are pretty boring. <laughs> uh, they are overshadowed by just about everything else in the home, but what the engineers at Smart did, which was really unique for its time, was not just try to design a smart thermostat by handing it over to engineers, which is what you would normally do. They assembled a team that looked really unlike anything that had ever been assembled before in the world of product development. They had software developers, they had marketing executives, they had math professors. It basically, people with zero experience in the design of heating and cooling units. They had never hacked HVAC. Hmm. And it was specifically because of that difference that existed within the team that they were able to, to create these unbelievable ideas and to generate what psychiatrists have, and psychologists have called creative abrasion, uh, which is the collision of ideas that are so unique, they're so different, they end up becoming something altogether new and unfamiliar. Mm -hmm. and, I love that expression. That, isn't it awesome? Yeah. Um, yeah, creative abrasion. Um, it's, it's just a great way to help organizations and really students at school develop the very best ideas. And in the case of Smart uh, of Nest, it was the first smart thermostat. And in the case of our schools, it can be the very next creative idea that is unleashed. It's, it's where new ideas come from. It refines the way teams are interacting with each other and changing the way those teams are designed to deliver results, sort of drawing upon all the other steps that come before it you know, not being afraid to give particular and specific and authentic feedback, even when the feedback is bad, really trying to drive the idea count up through plussing, not shutting it down, mm -hmm. uh, 
um, really focusing on impactful solutions, not just pie in the sky ideas. That's where ideas stop becoming just ideas. They become realities. One of the things you talked about in the book was is this idea of um, putting people together who come from different perspectives, people who are more likely to disagree on something, how that ends up producing better results than having people team together who mostly see things the same way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think um, we already, as teachers, we have a sense of this just in terms of differentiating for process or differentiating groups mm-hmm. based on prior knowledge and readiness and all that stuff. But but this is another level, right? This is really understanding the the talent that exists in your team or within the walls of your classroom and unleashing that team genius to create something so much more powerful. Um, you know, we like to say like the smartest person in the room is the room. Yeah. I think there's truth to it, right? I mean, there's a lot of truth to that, that you know, we have in our midst smart people, but smart in different ways, yeah. who bring different skills, talents, and dispositions to, to bear every day. And that's true at work, and that's true in the classroom. That's why companies like Facebook and Google are experimenting with things called job crafting, which is basically allowing people to shape parts of their jobs, you know, not to just work off of a, of a pre-established job description, but really to have voice and choice in that process. Yeah. Um, that's why when we um, build capacity within our own schools, we really, like the best administrators, they're not just managers, they understand who their people are uh, and who they can become. And they, they very specifically and ruthlessly drive that potential and that talent uh, to the forefront. And they make people into the very best versions of themselves. Because as much as I, you know, as much as I think there's a value in bringing in outsiders, there's a lot of wisdom already that exists within. Absolutely. Absolutely. Gosh, I'm just thinking about all the potential. If, if our administrators think more this way and if our teachers think more this way about their students, um, it, school just becomes much more than a place where we just sort of churn out the day-to-day stuff and you're really looking at the potential yeah. of every person. So we are we are at the one hour mark already. So I think we are going to have to skip our plans for this last section. Um, we'll have to do a part two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cause that's, I mean, there are so many good points in that second part of the book that um, I will probably hang on to these notes and maybe we can do that some other time. Um, yeah, that'd be great. So tell, uh, tell my listeners where they can find you online. I'm going to be giving them links to the feedback fix so that they can go straight from the website, but tell us where else we can find you online. Yeah, you can um, find out more about me, um, sort of what I'm up to, aside from being a teacher, how I'm helping schools and businesses apply behavioral science for more positive and productive workplaces at my website, uh, joehirsch.me, H-I-R-S-C-H. Whoever has joehirsch.com, thanks a lot. I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And you can get the feedback fix in hardcover or ebook on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, you know, pretty much anywhere books are sold. Fantastic. Uh, I really appreciate you um, coming on here and also with the patience that you have had for how slow it was for me to get this going. I, I really appreciate it. It's all about a journey. It's not about the destination. So uh, it was, it was awesome um, having the chance to talk with you today, Jan. And hopefully um, in the course of our conversation, we were able to really help your listeners um, understand how Feed Forward 
can not just change how people see who they are, but really who they are becoming. For links to all the resources mentioned in this episode, including a link to Joe's book, The Feedback Fix, go to cultofpedagogy.com, click podcast, and choose episode 87. To get a weekly email from me about my newest blog posts, podcast episodes, and products, sign up for my mailing list at cultofpedagogy.com slash subscribe. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. This podcast is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. To learn more, visit edupodcastnetwork.com.